I want to start this evening with a question. That being, very simply, what will make you happy this Christmas? Or simply, I guess, just what makes you happy? Now, I know that's sort of subjective. Now, for some here, money. A little bit of money or a lot of zeros will make some of us very happy. We'd be very happy. For others of us in here, um, likes and followers on Instagram would make us happy. Or others of us in here, getting, getting that job would make you happy. Getting that person, getting that promotion, getting that possibility, getting that role, getting that reputation would make you very, very happy. And it's unique because Easter and Christmas are some of those times for Bible teachers where we have the access and liberty to ask the million-dollar questions of life. You are here to be told the answers to the million-dollar questions of, of God and life and eternal life and the afterlife and happiness. See, the question, what makes you happy, has to be at the top of the list. Because it's this season which is really, in a lot of ways, um, the pursuit of happiness. This season, this Christmas season, is the culmination with, with family and friends and all things happy. There's presents and eggnog. Sweet, sweet eggnog, manna from heaven. We love it. But also, during this season, for so many, it's also a hope for happiness. Even if you think about some of the most infamous... Christmas stories and films that we have, it's all about the hunt for that thing, that stuff, uh, that will be supposedly the achievement of happiness. Think about it. For Ralphie, it was a Red Ryder carbine action 200 shot range model air rifle with a compass in the stock and a thing which tells time. If you know that movie. For Jamie, it was a Turbo Man action figure given to him by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Who doesn't want that for Christmas? And for George Bailey, his happiness came from knowing his purpose. It was then he realized how wonderful his life actually was. Now for each one of us, we, we find and we search for happiness in many different ways. See, from Turbo Man dolls or to kids' firearms, uh, it, it's really the question of what makes you happy. Um, I wanted to kind of pose that maybe it really isn't that subjective. What if the question, what makes you happy, wasn't that subjective? Because I believe it's Christmas time, Christmas season, that reminds us of our humanity. Because we're all pretty similar if we start to really think about it. That we have the same deeper and longing needs. You see, what if happiness, what if joy, what if supreme happiness for each and every one of us was the same? Uh, Famous French playwright Victor Hugo agrees with me. He said this on the subject in the 1800s. He said, The supreme happiness in life is the conviction that we are loved. Now, when I read that quote, I liked it because Hugo, I mean, there's no caveats. There's, 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 There's no disclaimers. Hugo just comes out and tells us that if you want supreme, utmost, comic-sized happiness, it comes from love. Not from loving, but from being loved. Now, isn't that really what all these other superficial and fleeting pursuits of happiness stem from? They are the branches to the, the sort of redwood trunk of us as humans. 
desiring and hoping and needing and just wanting to be loved. We want to be loved. See, a well-known reputation means we are loved by many. Being with that person means we are loved intimately. And snagging that role or that, that, that promotion means that we are loved the most. And it's within the Christmas season and deeper still within the meaning of Christmas that we not only find that we are loved, that you are loved, that I am loved, but we are loved with the greatest love that you or I will ever know. See, thus creating what Victor Hugo would call supreme happiness. See, this is not the type of happiness where, you know, again, I want to make sure we understand, this is not the type of happiness where every day is apple picking and lemonade. But it's a supreme assurance that isn't fleeting or based upon circumstance. See, believe in the true and real purpose of Christmas or not. You believe in Christmas or not, you still can't deny that there is really no greater love story than the gospel. Retired Archbishop of Canterbury, theologian and poet Rowan Williams, uh, he said it similar. He said, the gospel will never tell us that we are innocent, but it will tell us that we are loved. You see, the Bible tells not a, not a, not a myth, does not tell of a, of a fable or some fiction love story. The Bible tells the great lengths that God went to be around those who have rejected him. That, my friends, is love. And I believe it's safe to assume, for some reason, for some in this room, in this very room, that the meaning of Christmas, you probably perceive as um, ridiculous. I believe it's safe to assume that you maybe there are some here tonight who think the Christmas story is ridiculous. That you were dragged here by a friend or a family member. Well, first, welcome, and I hope tonight is not that bad, but you've heard the story a bunch, and you're hearing it yet again, what you believe is just silly. Then I have to believe that there are some here tonight who probably Christmas and the story of Christmas is more rational. See, for others, the meaning of Christmas really is an idea of logic or tradition or routine. It's rational. It's a season where we do this or we do that, and you rationally believe in God, and every Christmas, and maybe, maybe it's, it's only at Christmas, we attend these sort of church gatherings because that's what rational believers of God do. But I'm here tonight to excite you and speak about the greatest event in human history. The thunderclap of humanity. That being the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Incarnation simply meaning to, to embody. To embody. Christmas is God embodying humanity. Please allow this to melt our brains. Christmas is God embodying humanity. The creator becoming creation. Taking upon bones and fingernails and organs and flesh. The incarnation is the painter walking into his canvas. The incarnation is God in a body. And he did this for you and he did it for me. See, I don't want us just to hear this very broadly. Very simple at Christmas time that we can just hear this very broadly that God loves me. Got it! I don't want us to hear this broadly. God came to be with you and me. God came to be with you and you and you. So here's my point. Where some think the incarnation is ridiculous. And some here might think the incarnation is just a rational thing we do. Come to Christmas and just be a part of this. And this is just another service. 
But I'm actually here today to try and get us to see its purpose, the idea of the incarnation. I'm trying to hear, get us to understand today that it's relational. It's relational, that it's not ridiculous. It's more than just a mere rational thought. Christianity is fundamentally a relational faith. And the incarnation of Jesus Christ proves that. See, it's a heralding to this world the news that you are loved. The incarnation is a roaring yes to humanity's question of God, are you there? It's a roaring yes to humanity's question, is there a God? It's a booming I'm here to every cry of will somebody help me? This Christian, I really want to encourage each one of us, whether I know you or not, to just slow down. Which I know is so self-help subtitled to a book. Slow down in the Christmas rush. Like, I just want us to actually slow down. Because I believe if we create space and we schedule time, this will not just be another Christmas. So please take time to be struck this season by the incarnation. Maybe that means tomorrow morning you get up early. That means maybe you stay up late. Whatever it may be, just do what the season is calling for. What church tradition Advent is calling for. To ponder, like we talked about last week. To remember and reflect on all that we are now, all that we have now, and all that we hope for now as we look towards the past and the anticipation of what is to come. Because before we dissect the incarnation as some historical fact to be observed, like Lorenzo was just talking about, or as a paradox to be scrutinized, how is this possible? And yes, the incarnation is both historical and it is a paradox. But before all of that, it's a message of hope to be received. It's a message of hope to be received. And that, my friends, um, lies the challenge. There's a challenge within that. See, the first thing I believe the incarnation does is actually challenge you and it challenges me. Here's why. The Bible says this. In John 1, I'll read it to you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. Jump down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I actually really like the way Eugene Peterson says it. He says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. You see, it's a challenge because God moves into your neighborhood and then he comes over and he knocks on your door. And he presents a gift. And that gift is to be received or that gift, sadly, uh, is rejected. Because the incarnation is an invasion. The incarnation is an invasion. It's an intrusion of our lives in the most beautiful and needed of ways. So the incarnation challenges you as it challenges me to examine everything, to reassess everything, to think intentionally about everything, our choices, our spending, the people we are with, the ones that we love. It challenges everything to examine what God is offering this world and what God is offering you. And the Bible tells us that what is being offered can only be found from the fountainhead. The Bible is telling us what only can be offered can be found from the source, from the internal, from God himself. Like Apple products. I mean, you can only get the right ones from Apple. 
Anything else will let us down. It will hurt us. It will fail us. And it will lie to us. And this is the offer. This is the offer. I'm going to read it. It's verse 11 if you guys have your Bible open. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly was with them the angel of a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So if you missed it, the offer, the gift that God is offering us is peace. Um, I often tell stories of my upbringing and my impoverished situations. And if you're over them, I'm really sorry. My wife said today, really another one, but I'm going to share it anyway because I think it's pertinent. Um, I will never forget a holiday season where, again, we were very poor. And I was a, I was a young boy and we, um, we had no food. The majority of our meals were um, top ramen cold noodle bars. Anybody eat those? You know what I'm talking about? You don't heat it up or put water with it. You just eat the noodle bar and put the stuff on top. Nobody? Sarah doesn't get it. Nobody eats that. Thank you for being poor with me. And so... We had that most of the time and spaghetti most of the time. And I'll never forget this one year during the holiday season. Uh, we had this long driveway and I could see headlights coming up at dark. And it was the pastor from a down the street. And he had a huge, huge box of food. And there was a turkey in there and beans and cheese and mashed potatoes in a box. Um, and I was ecstatic. And I'll never forget it. I was like, oh my gosh. Like, we can have a real meal. And my mother answered the door, and I'm behind her, like, I'm going to eat good tonight. And she turned the pastor away. And she just, no. And she rejected the meal. And, and I watched him up against the window get in his car. And I remember thinking, nah, mm-mm. And so I, as this little eight-year-old boy, ran out of the house, and I jumped in front of his car. No joke. And I started, no, no, no. And I went over to the window. I said, my mom's crazy. I'll take the box of food. (laughs) And the pastor was very excited about it. And he handed me this box of food. And I went back inside. And the crazy part was, my mom was so pumped. She was so happy I grabbed grabbed, um, the food. So I, I share that silly story to remind us that the incarnation was the gift. It is the gift that comes to our neighborhoods and it rings our bell and it knocks on our door. You see, it was the gift that was offered. Uh, the gift that was offered was peace. It's shalom. It's certainty and uncertainty. Think about it. Kids in this room, do you guys remember why the Grinch, uh, turn, you know, became, you know, part of Christmas anity? Like why he converted? Do you guys remember why the Grinch converted? Kids, you remember? See, it was it the impressive trees or was it presents that converted the Grinch? No. It was the song of supreme happiness by those of Whoville who recently lost everything. The Whoville people lost everything. And it was their peace that Christmas is more than a holiday, that they had certainty in uncertainty despite their circumstances. For them, that was real peace. And the Grinch saw it and the Grinch was changed. See, friends, the challenge, again, will you receive this peace or will you reject it? 
See, by now, I think you're probably getting that I'm not talking about the peace that maybe, maybe just merely ends wars or peace that settles disputes among enemies or peace that comes with daisies and tie-dye. I'm talking about the greatest peace there is, that being a spiritual peace between God and man, only found in Jesus. This is what gives the thousands of angels who appeared to the shepherds something to sing about. Because all hatred and all fear and all confusion and rebellion can be reconciled by this child wrapped in some swaddling cloths. Those emotions and anxieties can be redeemed by believing and confessing our need for the Prince of Peace. I want to break it down even more. That's so broad. I want to break it down even more. For anyone and everyone here tonight with body image issues, with addictions and impulses, with troubled marriages, with frustrations with our single life, with the wrong side of the track children, with failing careers and disabilities, I cannot promise you a pill to pop or a perfectly fixed situation, but I can promise you that if you receive Jesus, you can have a peace that surpasses all understanding. See, Jesus is the meal brought to the door. My mother would admit today, God bless her sweet soul, she would admit today that what she did in that moment was pride. It was her pride that rejected peace. My mother would admit today that it was self-righteousness that said, I don't need your food. My mother would admit today that it was her isolation and individualism that slammed the door. So I ask today, what is stopping you? What is stopping you? I was thinking, and this could be completely wrong, but I was thinking, if you're here tonight and you don't believe in the story of Christmas and the person of Jesus, for whatever reason, don't you at least wish it was real? Don't you at least wish all of this was true in your own logic and rational thinking? See, a caring and loving God, that sounds great. Humble and present living God, immediate family in the church, eternal purposes, everlasting peace, and existential change. Maybe it's the change part that stops so many from accepting the peace. Because the incarnation does change us. The incarnation, the embodiment, changes us. It changes you. See, it challenges and then it changes us. For the story of Christ's birth should dramatically change, not just the idea of Christmas, but every moment of every day of our lives. The shepherds found Jesus in this Jerusalem barn of sorts. Mary and Joseph did not give birth in the comfort of their own home or the hospital, but traveled 60 to 70 miles due to this decree, thus fulfilling prophecy, and they received the utmost holiness in utter humility. Also, if you noticed, this might just ruin some kids' lives or your nativity scene. There's no mention that Mary rode to Bethlehem on a donkey. It's just a side note. There's no mention of animals surrounding the manger and singing Silent Night that we all believe, little lambs. There's nothing like that. There's no wise men next to the manger. And there's no mention of this cold-hearted innkeeper. Simply, it's a very, very unimpressive Situation of how our God came into this world. It's very unimpressive. And I believe that should change us. I believe that should change us. That the incarnation keeps us grounded. The incarnation keeps us grounded and helps us to appreciate the extraordinary of the ordinary. 
to appreciate the small things. If you're new to the Christian faith or don't understand it, the way God, God's kingdom work, and we see that in the birth of Jesus, is through small things. God has planned to, to redeem the world, small baby. Thousands of people fed, a couple loaves and some fish. The plan to reach the nation, nations, just a handful of disciples. See, the incarnation changes us and it reminds us that God, God's kingdom, our life as Christians, small generates big. Lowly produces lavish. Giving is far better than receiving. And the ordinary is truly the extraordinary. Church, can I ask you, if we believe this in our belly, if we believe this, how would this change us as a collective body of people on the West Side? If we really believe that the small generates the big, and that there's extraordinary in the ordinary, how would this change us? You see, what's done in the name of Jesus, though small and token, is grand and ripe with heavenly, heavenly outcomes. It was Jesus himself who said these words, and whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, not a Christmas present, a cup of cold water, it's all, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. See, those who call this church home allow the incarnation to change you. May we never, ever share a meal the same way again. May we never ever see the sunrise the same way again. May we never pick a wildflower the same way again. May we never go to work the same way again. May we we never see birth or death or illness or failures the same way again. Even this Christmas, I so encourage us, take initiative. Take initiative. Christmas is not about passivity, even though it's a time of rest. As we play board games, take initiative this Christmas. As we go out caroling, as we eat ham and chocolate and eggnog. Gosh, I love eggnog. So, so many small things. Take initiative by doing them in the name of Jesus. For the glory of Jesus. Now, did you, I don't know if you noticed this, but I want us to see the muster and the initiative of the shepherds. Look at verse 15. When the angels went away... From them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. There was no command for the angels to be like, Now is the time you go. Go, go, go. They're not doing that. The shepherds are like, We gotta, we gotta see this. We gotta see this. And so the shepherds went and they saw and they rejoiced. And if we keep reading, there's this great moment in this Christmas passage that if we read it too fast, we can miss it. Verse 17, if your Bibles are open. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. Verse 18. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen and what has been told to them. See, when one is touched like the shepherds were when someone grasped the gravity and gratitude of the incarnation they cannot help but speak about it a lot my my daughter violet are you here violet there she is my daughter violet uh she's obsessed with many things 
She's pretty sure when she gets older, she's going to be a rock and roll cowgirl who rides horses all day. She reminds me all day she needs no man, that she can do this by herself. She's extremely obsessed with cats, even though she's allergic to them. God bless her. But hands down, my, my, my daughter's biggest obsession so far in her life is the Christmas elf on the shelf. Does anybody know what I'm talking about, elf on the shelf? Four of you? God bless you. If you don't know, let me explain it just really quickly. You buy this elf out of Barnes & Noble, and when you buy them and you take them home, they become alive. They become alive, and they're supposed to do things at night, you know, around your house. Ours makes messes. I wish it balanced our checkbooks and did laundry, but ours makes a ton of messes. So every morning, my sweet daughter comes running downstairs in her chonies, and she's just like, where's Poppy? That's the name of the elf. Where's Poppy? Where's Poppy? She searches everywhere. And she'll find Poppy the elf in a new situation. And she's freaking out. She's excited. But all day it's Poppy this, Poppy that. You think Poppy's awake? You think Poppy's moved? You think Poppy wants juice? Do you think Poppy wants to eat? You think Poppy's tired? All day. And she tells her friends and she tells her teachers and she calls grandparents on the phone and she tells the neighbors all about Poppy. See, my daughter is wonderstruck. My daughter is wonderstruck with this elf. The dis- uh, that. The the shepherds are wonderstruck. We should be wonderstruck by the incarnation. You see, if the incarnation challenges us and it changes us, then it also commissions us. Christians, if you are in this room, it commissions us to tell the good news to everyone. To everyone. For for, For those on Venice Beach who will be spending Christmas on pavement or in sand. Or for those all the way to the Palisades or in Bel Air who will be spending Christmas in a very beautiful home. See, I love that the shepherds weren't called out of their profession. I love this. The angels didn't show up and say, now you're all pastors. Go out and do ministry. They weren't called out of the profession to be evangelistic or to be salt and light. The shepherds didn't wait for a church to do ministry. The shepherds did not wait for some pastor or somebody with a, you know, a seminary degree to show up and start spreading the message of hope. The shepherds, the most average people, went out and told their surroundings about what they saw and what they heard and what changed them. They were called out of the world to worship and to witness. Not out of their jobs, not out of relation, out of this world to worship and witness. You and I, Christians, are called out of this world to worship and witness. If I can be so bold to say, some of us have forgotten that. We've forgotten that. We are to go out as average day Westsiders and tell our surroundings about what we saw and what we've heard and what we believe. And we are to do this like Jesus. Meaning, incarnational ministry. We are to do this like Jesus, meaning incarnational mission. We don't want to be these Christians who go out and start telling about gimmicks or bait and switch or promises of health or health or health and wealth or, or, or easy beliefism. See, we are to simply be with people. We're to be with people, both Christian and not. We're to be with people and to love them despite the love that we may get in return. We're to be with people and be compassionate and to help them and provide for them and be a witness all in the name of Jesus. Think about it. How did Jesus do mission? Or how did Jesus reach people? How did Jesus love people? He moved into the neighborhood. He was with them. 
This is why we take our calling to reach people on the west side so seriously. If you've been around us for a while, you get that. This is why we ask and will continue to ask people to move in. If, you, if you're new to this church, there are people in this room who've moved from different parts of LA and the country to be a part, to incarnationally be a part, to embody the west side, to care for those, to love people around us, to do good, to be salt and light. So this is what I want us to get, that for greater effectiveness in loving people, Jesus knew that he had to be among them. He had to be with people, that he was with us. And that's really what this is all about, right? This is what this is all about. What does Emmanuel mean during Christmas? God with us. Isn't that beautiful? Those are some beautiful, just three words. God with us. See, that as embedded missionaries, that is what we are to take to our classroom, to our homes, to our auditions, to our office. The truth that God is with us and God is with you. We remind people that supreme happiness is not found in loving something, but being loved by someone. And that someone is God himself. Treasure up these things like Mary did with the scriptures that we read tonight. Treasure them up. Store them in our heart. And leave this place. Celebrate Christmas. Be with family family and friends. Open presents. Sing songs around the tree. Do all of that with fresh breath and hope in our heart and insurance of mind that God is not against us. That God is not, that God does not hate us. That God has not abandoned us. God has not left us. God has not ignored us. But the truth that God is with us.